Do you feel as if reality has been altered? Or that things are a bit off? That something or someone has interfered with our collective present moment? Then this is a podcast for you. This is the sound of duality. This is the sound of the sonification of a DMT molecule as it travels through your body, opening you to the world and the knowledge that you see. It's also the sound of sheep and bliss, wandering this universe possibly in both states, and the concept of Sonder, playing a role in the opera of life created by these two states of being. So, who are you? Are you the person you remember yesterday? Or are you only you right now in this present moment, never having been part of what you call your memory? Pull up a pew and take a seat. This is a podcast of all you touch and all you see. The guests are everything in between. Enjoy the ride. Enjoy the duality of each state of being and your never-ending state of bliss, knowledge, and the very thin line between each. All right. Well, welcome, everybody, to the Pull Up a Pew podcast. For all you touch and all you see, our guest today is Yanir Baryam, and I'm going to go ahead and... uh, Give everybody an introduction here to Professor Yanir uh, Baryam. He holds an SB and PhD in physics from MIT. And since the late 1980s, he's contributed to the founding of the field of complex systems science, introducing fundamental mathematical rigor, real-world application, and educational programs for new concepts and insights of this field. His recent work quantitatively analyzes the origins and impacts of market crashes, social unrest, ethnic violence, military conflict, and pandemics, the structure and dynamics of social networks, as well as the basis of creativity, panic, evolution, and altruism. He has advised the Chairman's Action Group at the Pentagon about global social unrest and the crisis in Egypt and Syria the National Security Council and the National Counterterrorism Council on Global Strategy, the Chief of Naval Operations Strategic Studies Group about military force transformation, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention about delivery of prevention services and control of hospital infections, the Chairman and House of the Financial Services Committee, Chairman Barney Frank, about market regulation and the financial crisis, and other government organizations, NGOs, and corporations on using principles and insights from complex system science. He's authored more than 200 research papers in professional journals and has three patents. His work on the causes of global food crisis was cited among the top 10 scientific discoveries of 2011 by Wired Magazine. In addition to having taught more than 2,000 graduate students professionals, and executives. He's been visiting scholar at the Department of Molecular and Cellular Biology at Harvard and the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. 
He's currently visiting scientist at the MIT Media Laboratory. So, hello, Yanir. How are you today? Hi. Uh, great to be here. All right. Sounds good. So, uh, you know, this is the podcast for all you touch and all you see. And I think this is the perfect uh, subject for this, especially for our, our second interview. It couldn't be more perfect. And I met Yanir over Twitter and I invited him to come on to the show. And uh, I, I really want people to pay attention to what he explains because this uh, field of study, uh, I, I wouldn't say that it's 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 new, but it's it keeps developing constantly, at least from what I can see from uh, Yanir's work. And, you know, there's something of the um, uh, spiraling of, of technology and the spiraling down of information that uh, I think it's right now, every um, 30 days, we double the amount of information and data <clears throat> um, of the world, of our, our collective uh, consciousness, let's, let's call it. Uh, out there. And, and I'm sure that probably drives you near crazy because he has to <laughs> take all of those things into consideration. So let me go ahead and uh, let Yanir take the mic and, and explain to us what uh, complex studies is and, and what it is he does. Thank you. So, um, um, so let me start um, by, you know, with just a basic statement. Uh, you talked about sort of the rate of information that is present out there. And it's pretty clear that over time, the amount of information that is um, happening, if you will, in society is increasing. Um, and part of that is that, you know, what's happening over here and what's happening over there, wherever there is in the world, whether it's mm -hmm. Europe or Asia or Africa, becomes important for what we're doing. Um, and what we're doing is important for what's happening over there. And, and that kind of dependency between what's happening in different places is exactly what complex system science is designed to address. So there is this synergy between the appearance of complex system science at the time when the world has become so interdependent that everything really that we talk about is about these dependencies. And, um, and, and that's true whether we're talking about financial things like a financial crisis or whether we're talking about uh, pandemics um, where, you know, a disease anywhere in the world, that, you know, can propagate within hours on a plane so anywhere else. Right. Um, and, and it's true if we're talking about movement of people like immigration or, um, other things that have to do with people going like refugees, uh, that are going from one place to another. Now it's been true for many years that people move and that information flows and that technology also propagates around the world. But as we all know, that has accelerated dramatically particularly in the last few decades with not just the um, appearance of internet technologies that enable us to communicate, but just the fact that we're 
all so connected to each other through social networks and other means. So if that's the kind of the challenge is thinking about all of those dependencies, what is it that complex system science is about? And, and the answer is that it's actually a gap in the old mathematics mm-hmm. that was used in science. And really, it's sort of what we all think about in society mostly is statistics, right? So, you know, when they report in the news, they tell you how many percent of voters are about, are, you know, believe in this or how much, you know, um, what is the, you know, GDP or, or you know, is the inflation, uh, what is the percent inflation? All of those numbers are average numbers. So, for example, if you think about the United States and you say what the unemployment rate is, you can go down and look at the unemployment in in Massachusetts or in Boston or in, um, you know, in Florida or in California or different places. So we can look at those numbers, but looking at them in individual locations, how do we put all that information together? Right. How do we figure out what it means if the unemployment in one place is different from the unemployment in another? And how do we act in order to improve the way the system is working? All of those questions have to do with dependencies. Because when you have unemployment in one place, people move from one place to another. And, you know, there's now ability for people to work remotely. And how does that affect all this stuff? And so the fact that everything depends on everything else means that it's not just a local property or it's not just an average property. You have to figure out all of how that works. And And that movement, I'd imagine, changes the parameters that you're working with. Exactly. And, and, And that's what complex systems is about. And it turns out that some of the really neat things about how we learn to do complex systems are that when things work together, you get all kinds of dramatic things that can happen, like phase transition. So, for example, um, water boils. And the reasons that what happens when water is boiling, it turns out, is that things become connected, right? You end up with these bubbles that are not microscopic, but are macroscopic bubbles. And those kinds of things, and I'm not describing it really in detail, but the fact that we have um, transitions that can be abrupt, it has to do with the way things depend on each other. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of exciting uh, math that can be done about these systems, but that exciting math turns out to be necessary for thinking about thinking carefully about things like how risk, how, how much risk there is from a pandemic or, you know, what's going to happen if the U.S. Uh, goes into a mortgage crisis and how is that going to propagate into the economy, the rest of the economy and across the world. Um, and so when we, when we map out sort of the domino effects and the dependencies the entire system be, has has its co- these kinds of collective actions that are really, really kind of it becomes something completely different 
That's right. Doesn't it? You know, each individual component as it, as it branches out and you're adding more to it. Uh, I, I pictured you last night at a whiteboard, uh, you know, doing the mathematics of all this. It's just what I had in, in my mind. And, and again, because things are happening so, so quickly, or you're talking about a pandemic. And then, of course, that pandemic can affect the financial markets, you know, which can affect uh, maybe food production here, but just erasing something and then adding something and then hearing something new and erasing something and adding something. It just it's just a, it sounds like a never ending, you know, uh, body of, uh, of work that you have to do to, to keep up. Yeah. But one of the key things, though, is actually it turns out it's not never ending. And that okay. turns out to be one of the key realizations, which is that, you know, you think that if doing the average doesn't work, that you have to describe all the details, you know, say down to the, you know, molecules that were made out. Right. And it, that turns out not to be the case. A lot of the time you just need to add one or maybe two or three extra things that you include in the math. But one thing that you can say is that until you do that, everything looks really confusing. Um, and it's very hard to figure out if you push on something over here, what will happen over there. And that mm -hmm. is really a challenge for people who are responsible for making decisions. And among those people are, you know, CEOs of companies that have to make the big decisions for their companies. And it's also a big problem for policymakers and government. And, and so what we, what we see is that people go from understanding that, you know, doing this policy will have this effect and knowing that if they want something to happen, they know how to get there to, to sort of, first of all, basically randomly suggesting things, but more, uh, more correctly, there's a lot of ideological thinking that has very little to do with what the consequences are. Okay. And um, uh, that's a huge, huge challenge. Um, it's a huge challenge for policymakers. So for, you know, our president or presidents in general and mm -hmm. for uh, congressmen, um, uh, but it's all—it's it, surely also a huge challenge for everybody who wants to figure out who they want to put into a public office, because they can say something. They can say, "Hey, I want to accomplish this," and you vote on them because they say they want to accomplish that. Right. But if they have—if they can't figure out how to get there, then that's—it's not going to happen. Right. So, so I'd imagine that they're, they're obviously using your studies, um, you know, let's, let's say that the president of the United States or his cabinet and the, the different decision makers would be using uh, these, these formulas in order to try to achieve whatever his, the, the, the platform was, whatever problem it is. Let's, let's say the, uh, the issue at, at the border, the border crisis, as they call it right now. Yeah. Um, well, so, that so, action in one place is going to affect the reaction somewhere else, no matter what you do. And then you have to find out where, if you take action in one place, well, what happened in 
in other area somewhere else because something is happening, right? Yeah, people reaction, may reaction, reaction. Yeah, people may reasonably disagree about what your objective is, but if you don't know how an action will affect things, right. then it, you're basing a decision of action on on lack of understanding rather than understanding. And um, you mentioned the border issue, but another issue that is really pervasively important for people is the fact that economic growth in the United States is not what it used to be in the 50s and 60s. Right. And it's affecting you know many, many people. They're not able to advance in their goals and in their expectations about themselves. People feel very frustrated. And, you know, there are a lot of people that are in debt that are really struggling. Um, and the question is, where do you act in order to make it better? Is the fault in, you know, the you know, global trade? Is the fault in migration? Is the fault in, in you know, the, what the Federal Reserve is doing or whatever? And um, so people have all these different ideas. And if you look at the reasons that people are, are, are pointing at this, a lot of it has to do with the, with the uh, frustration that people have economically. Oh, and, yeah. As you mentioned, we're at the, the United States of the 1950s no longer exists, that American dream. You know, we've just really created a society of, of debt. Yeah. Um, and that's you know, a, a, a problem. It, it, I mean, this is one of the problems that we've chosen to look at specifically. And um, the answer is um, we can point to the specific mechanism that made things better in the 1950s and 60s and has since then uh, been progressively worse because people Declining. people have been pushing it in the wrong direction and they didn't realize that. Um, so we can talk about it, but you know, sort of to build it up, um, there are you know all of these symptoms that happen in the economy that you have to think about. Right? There are recessions. There is inflation. Um, and, um, there is, you know, income inequality and there is debt and there are all of these different things that you have to somehow figure out what is happening at the same time. There's the international trade that we mentioned. There's the growth of China. There's the, um, uh, interactions with, uh, the economies in the Americas. So what would you point to, to figure out what's happening? Well, and understand where we're going, we have to understand where we've we've been. Yeah, exactly. Right, and and a lot of these problems started uh, a long time ago w without us really taking them into consideration. The longer term effects, which is where we're at right now as well, and 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 I'm sure you're going to get to to a lot of this, but how our actions today are going to be affecting you know the our our children and our children's children's in, into the future. Yeah. Well, so. So it turns out that, you know, the, there's a very um, uh, important way to start this conversation, which is to try to figure out 
sort of what does the economy as a whole look like? Because, you know, people tend to think about um, very specific things like, I mean, exactly what we talked about before in terms of statistics. It says there's an overall amount of money in the economy. And if things are not doing as well as we want, there are two ways that things can go bad. One is that um, there's not enough money in the economy and then things kind of slow down. And the other one is that there's too much money in the economy and then that gives rise to inflation and that's also bad. And, and that's the picture that is being used by the Federal Reserve to regulate the economy. So if there's not enough money, they reduce interest rates, pushing more money into the economy. And if there's too much inflation, they increase rates. And that causes money to flow out of the economy or less money to flow in the economy. And, and that uh, slows things down so that there isn't a right. um, Now, it turns out that that's not enough. You need one other parameter. And to explain this, there are what are called two factors of production. There are two things that matter when you're making something in a factory or providing a service. One is the work that people do. And the other one is the capital, right? The amount of money that you have to invest in equipment and buildings um, and in, you know, creating the organizational structures that are needed in order to make everything happen. Um, and those two have different money flows. So people that work, they get paid. And when they get paid, they go out and buy stuff. And so the money that they, uh, pay to, for stuff goes to the companies that then pay the people who are making the stuff, right? So there's a right. loop right. going around and around of people being paid and people buying stuff. Um, that's separated from the money that people use for investment. So people who have a lot of money, investors, they provide money in investment and then they get money back from their investment in the form of returns, right? It's the principal and interest or, you know, the returns from a company, from profits that go to people who have significant amounts of money to invest. The, typically, the people who are doing work and getting paid, a lot of them don't have savings. They just spend what they, what they earn. And, um, and that well, they're not seeing any of that money because that, that person is very wealthy. All of that money is tied up in investments. None of it's liquid. None of it is out in the environment, so to speak. Right. Um, so it, some of it is, it depends where you are. And that comes to the next, okay. that actually comes to the next question. That's a really perfect lead into the next point. It turns out that let's imagine that you have two things that are happening. There's this flow and this flow. You can easily see that what matters is that they're balanced against each other. If you have too little of one, then it doesn't make sense because the other one can't be used and vice versa. So for example, if 
there isn't enough money in the investment loop, then you don't have the money to invest to build the factories to make the stuff that people want. Right. On the other hand, if you have, um, so the other way around, if you don't have enough money in the uh, consumption loop, then there isn't enough buying. And then why would you build anything? Because no one's going to buy it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it turns out that if you look now at historical data, before 1980, there was too much money in the consumption and wages loop, which means there was more money chasing after products because there wasn't enough money to invest to make the uh, products that people would buy. Right. After 1980, it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. And so what's happening today is that a lot of economic policy is based upon what was happening up until 1980 and hasn't changed given that the conditions are different. So another way to talk about this is imagine you're driving a car and what people are doing is they're pressing on the gas or putting on the brakes, but they haven't figured out that they need to use a steering wheel. <laughs> That's right. Okay. And so mm -hmm. the steering wheel is the balance between these different flows. And so what's end up happening is you're either going to end up on the left guardrail, right? Or you're going to end up on the right guardrail, but you're not going to be driving down the road. Straight. So before 1980, we were on the, on one guardrail and after 1980, we were on the other guardrail. And, um, what's been happening is that since 1980, as things happen, like there were recessions or things were not going as well as people wanted, what they're doing is they're progressively making it more so that they're going toward the guardrail that they're against. And, and that's, you know, going to hurt everybody. I mean, there are going to be some people that are going to be happier than other people, but basically the economy is kind of just uh, creating sparks against the guardrail. And um, so the way that works today, so in 1980s, the early 1980s, there was the tax policy change that Reagan, Ronald Reagan introduced that shifted money of the, you know, taxes and so on toward investors, right? Talked about it's the job down creators. Theory. What? Was this the trickle down? That's right. Theory, now, right? Trickle down is a negative term. And if you had asked me in 1980 whether it was a good idea to do trickle down economics, I would have told you mm -hmm. uh, doesn't sound right to me. Um, I may have used some more strong words. Um, but it turns out that it was actually correct. Um, it was the right thing to do because there, the investors didn't have enough money to create the products that the consumers could buy. And so what was happening is that consumers were putting money aside into savings. They weren't buying stuff. So they were accumulating savings. And um, the investors were going into debt. They were borrowing money in order to build factories and buy equipment and stuff. Right. Okay. And that was actually creating inflation. So inflation is too much money chasing after too few products. It's not about having too much money altogether because 
Inflation is about the relative value of money to products. So it's really about having more money than you have products. And somehow that's not discussed very effectively by economists. I, I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Why economists don't say things that are fairly obvious sometimes, but that is not being discussed effectively. So if there's too much money and too few products, then the um, you have inflation. But now, if you put more money into the investors, right, which is what Reagan did, now you might, the question is, how far did you go? And the answer is, Reagan didn't have a, the calculation to tell them how far to go. And what ended up happening is that they went too far. Mm -hmm. And because the subsequent governments, and this is not just Republican, it's Democrat and Republican governments have generally shifted in the same direction. Um, we're, you know, progressively in worse shape because of we're in the opposite regime. We're in the other, other direction, which is that um, now investors are saving a lot of money because they have nothing to invest in because people don't have enough money to buy stuff. And the consumers are in debt. And we know that that debt is like $14 trillion today. Yeah, right, right. But that's, it's not what investors, investors have like $5 trillion in savings. Mm -hmm. And it's just sitting there. So they're not making jobs because there's not enough money for people to buy stuff. So this is an example. I mean, it's 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 a. Good is this example. what led to the the the? I didn't mean to interrupt, but the uh, the the '90s, you know, the internet uh, bust. Um, when you were talking about you know Reagan's system starting to work, but then it 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 didn't in the long term. Yeah. So well, I'd imagine that's what led to that. That there, there was a lot of this investment into these unknown companies. Um, what you have that is were a really lot of doing money. nothing. You have a lot of money looking for places to invest. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's going to give rise to bubbles, right? Where people bid stuff up because that's going to, looks like a good investment as long as it's going up. And so you bid stuff up and then it crashes because there's not, they can't sell enough. Um, so there's all of these false opportunities for investment and a lot of money still sitting on the side. So that's, that the the smart investors are looking for smart places to invest. If the consumers had more money, then there would be a lot more good places to invest and the investors would have where to invest to make more money. Now, they may not like that idea because what it really means is that they should bear more of the tax burden and more money goes to right. the poor rather than poor paying tax. Right Today, we have people that have a... a excess you know income of ten thousand dollars paying twelve percent taxes and people with forty thousand dollars paying whatever it is twenty percent taxes mm -hmm. um and you know investors uh don't pay any taxes on their returns until they're realized so they can sit on them for 20 right. years they continue to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate instead of paying taxes every year or anything like that um the, the, the money accumulates without paying any taxes and when they do pay taxes the tax rate is lower than people who are um 
uh, earning wages. So, um, how does the Federal Reserve, you know, factor in here? I I know that Trump has a picture, a painting of Andrew Jackson in the Oval Office. I know he's a, a big fan of Andrew Jackson, and of, and of course, Andrew Jackson at the time was a big proponent of of uh, getting rid of the central banking system and and kind of foreseeing the, the problems that would arise uh, from this. Um, which, which did, I think occurred, you know, around 1913, um, you know, and eventually leading us off of the, the gold standard. But, but I know that one of his goals that isn't spoken about, most people don't, don't understand this or because it's not spoken of, but, but it's his desire to, um, dissolve the, the federal banking system and, and, uh, or the federal reserve and the central banking system itself, which just keeps printing more and more money and adding more and more debt. And so, so there, there are accounting issues that need to be fixed and we could talk about that, but it'll, it's probably not for this conversation, but the, the bottom line is actually the fed, I think is doing a good job given the tool that it has available to what it has, right? It has, it just has the gas and the brakes. It doesn't have control over tax policy, which is called fiscal policy. It's taxing and, and benefits and all that stuff. Um, so the Fed basically has one knob that it can turn or gas and brake that it can push in, and on. And, um, and, and the, the effect that they're doing, imagine again that you're, you're I mean, I'm, I'm going back and forth between different analogies, but Again, think about this car that you don't, you're not steering it, but you're pushing on the gas and, and brake. And imagine that you're headed over in one direction, but given your gas and brake, it not only does that, it kind of veers the car because the car is not, um, not uh, doing, is not well tuned by a mechanic. So what they're doing is they're kind of doing that back and forth. If, if you wanted to think about a different analogy that would make it work, Imagine that you're in a sailboat and the wind is against you. The best thing that you can do is you can go first left and then right and then left and then right. And that's basically what the Federal Reserve has been doing. Okay. The right thing, of course, to do would be, you know, to, 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 to turn the thing in the right direction so that we're going much faster or to really understand how to uh, manipulate the two parameters that are really important for the economic growth and to build a policy around that. But the Fed has a limited set of controls. It's only one out of two. And given what it has, it's actually doing an incredible job. And the way to think about it is that as the economy grows, it needs more money flowing through it. And so some mechanism has to be present for regulating that money flow. And, and so the fact that the Federal Reserve is doing that is a good thing. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, now, we've spent a lot of time on this one example, and, and maybe it's a good idea to kind of, you know, talk more generally about sort of what is it that I'm doing when I... Yeah, maybe shift it. gears into uh, maybe how it affects uh, the environment, maybe on a biological um, scale, 
Um, I'd be interested in hearing it, how this works uh, within the, the human body and, of course, our, um, our, our brain, our, our system, how we operate, and, uh, and then also how we fit into the, the larger scale of, of the natural cycle of things sure. here on, on the planet. So every system that you look at, (laughs) let's start with a biological system. It's taking us away from social for a moment. What is science mostly doing when it's studying, you know, biomedicine? And the answer is people are spending a lot, a lot of time looking at molecules and understanding each specific molecule and how it fits into the next molecule and what it does in a particular place in a cell and all of this stuff, which is very important things to know if you happen to be sitting right next to that molecule. Um, But if you think about the body as a whole, um, there are these general things that a doctor is going to look at, like blood pressure and temperature and things like that. And when medicine started, it was focused on sort of what those things were. Whereas we've kind of, I don't know if forgotten is the right word, but we've kind of, we, we don't believe that we can advance our understanding of the big things. We only think that we can advance it by looking at the tiny things. And that's not the case. Just like in the economy, the understanding the, the response behavior of the human body to um, different kinds of things that happen, whether they're dietary or, you know, exercise or, or, or many other things that have to do with our health, they're not really being studied very much. And I say the that preventative it's side. kind of surprising. Um, and, um, and basically what I'm doing and what, you know, people in complex system science more generally are doing is we're kind of, again, using these new mathematical tools to go back and re revisit some of these very basic questions. And in physiology, it has to do with, you know, medical interventions, but also, you know, the, how we, um, you know, what we eat. I mean, every, you know, few, you know, year or two, we find out that, you know, the thing that we thought was good for us is bad for us, but <laughs> Um, or the thing that was bad for us is good for us or whatever. And the reason is that we don't have a solid understanding of physiology as a whole. No. And going back to society for a moment, the same thing is true about society. So Mm -hmm. most people don't know that, you know, when the Arab Spring riots broke out, the main driver of that was increases in food prices that were have to do with the, you know, commodity markets and sure. and 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 uh, U.S. policy about ethanol and understanding these big things is the first issue that we need to know in order to create policies that will make things better. And it's it's not doesn't surprise me at all. It shouldn't be surprising to anyone that people don't know what to do in these conditions where, you know, what you do over here is affecting what you do over there. Um, 
What we need to do, though, is to build our ability to create this kind of understanding. And, and basically what I've been doing for 20 years, over 20 years now, is trying to, uh, first of all, show that we can understand these indirect effects that seem so mysterious and lead people to think about all kinds of um, um, you know, conspiracies or other things that are not necessarily there mm -hmm. if the natural way things work is that things depend upon other things. That doesn't mean that conspiracies don't exist, by the way. Right, it just means that um, it's we have to understand the natural behavior of a system in order to figure out how to engage with it. Um, so first how of all, how do you see this can, applying to what's happening in in France? You know, with the, with the yellow jacket riots, and you know, they say that it's you know a, a fuel issue, but I have a feeling that it's it's probably a lot more than than just issues of fuel pricing. Yeah, I mean, people are, you know, again, I mean, it's somewhat like what's happening in the United States, and and some of the reasons are probably similar. Um, you know, Europe has gone through these rounds of what they call austerity, which basically is to shift the burden of society to the people who have the least ability to right. to uh, handle it. Mm -hmm. um, and eventually, you know, people are going to stand up and say, you know, what happened? We're we're in big trouble. It didn't go away. You know, the whole idea of austerity was, well, tighten our belts a little bit, and then things will get better. If things didn't get better. They're just doing another round of tightening. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so this, you know, if we if we, I had a friend who who said. Um, uh, the, the the rope was too short, so I cut it. It was still too short, so I cut it again. Um, if you're going in the wrong direction with your solutions, things are going to get worse and worse. And we see that in many of the cases, right? If people have the wrong understanding of how to fix something, they're going to keep doing more and more, working harder and harder, going in the wrong direction. So um, Another example of that is healthcare, right? I mean, going from the right. individual physiology up to the system that's supposed to help us with our physiology, the healthcare system. Um, people have been trying to fix it because of too high costs and not enough, not quality is not high enough, and it doesn't get better. So what do they do? They keep trying harder to do the thing that they were doing in the first place, which is not making it better. Um, and... And so we have to really step back and reevaluate how are our actions actually affecting the system as a whole. I was going to say we're so insulated here in the United States um, as a society. You know, we we really don't understand what's happening outside in other countries and other areas of the world. Um, yeah, but honestly, not necessarily the people that are that are studying it, but just just meaning people in, in general. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. I think that the, the world is hard to understand, but the truth is we don't understand what's going on here either. Right, right. Um, and how close are we to getting into a situation that like what we see there in, in France or yeah. or even in the United Kingdom, which isn't isn't spoken of very much. Um the, the main reason Brexit. why democracies are better is because people have a voice and if they're in trouble, they can raise their voice and make things better. But 
Absolutely. If, if the policies are disconnected from what people want, it's not going to make things better. And so you can vote, you know, extreme right or you can vote extreme left, but if the policies are not going to actually fix the problem, then people are going to continue not being happy. Eventually, they'll they'll really be so frustrated right. they'll do something different, whatever that is. And right now in France, well, the founding fathers were so were so smart too, and they set this up, you know, as a republic, and which most people don't even realize that we are, and think that we're just a straight democracy, which which we're not, and thank God we're not because then you have the mob rules mentality of, uh, you know, the, uh, um, the, the majority taking away certain liberties or rights away from, from the minorities. And so that's how they, you know, set things up, which all of this talk about, you know, socialism and moving away from that is a very, very scary, um, at least to me, um, issue right now that especially the younger generation, I, I don't think they realize that that uh, system does not work. <laughs> it's never, it's never worked. And just by adding the, the, the word democracy in front of it doesn't make it, you know, any, any better. You know, there's, there's something that's even more basic than what you're talking about, which, you know, I've spent time and uh, thinking about and, and, um, and evaluating and, and that is the um, the fact that the world has all this information that is so overwhelming, which we started this conversation about, and this is the right time to get back to it. How can anyone understand all of that information? Mm -hmm. and, and the answer is you can't. I mean, there's no way. <laughs> no, I don't envy you. You, 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 were, you were talking about me coping with it, but the answer is right. I don't. I, I learn how to pick problems that are kind of the – you know, some key problems that we need to understand in order to design policies or some other specific issues that may be helpful, for example, in medicine. And if you can, how does the average person deal with these well, issues on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Yeah, it's well, the, the answer is the difference between people is not as much in that regard as you might think. And the answer is that basically everybody's overwhelmed. And the question is, what do we do about it? And don't think that any policymaker, whether it's the one that people voted for last time or the one that people will vote for next time, no policymaker can grapple with all that information. So there are two different ways that we can help with that. And one is what we've been talking about, which is sort of figuring out these big effects. You know, if you push on the system over here, what happens over there? Which knob will help in improving economic growth? That can help. But the other thing it turns out that people can do is learn how to work with each other better. And the reason is that different people understand different information. And it's not just that they pay attention to different information and one person listens to, you know, this um, political commentary. They just understand it differently in another in a different way. It's that people have different brains. Mm -hmm. that enable them to filter different kinds of information. And, and the fact that my brain is, is, is better at math than most people's, let's say, um, right. means that my brain is less good at other things that other people are better at. So the only way that we can overcome this problem of too much information 
is actually by working together collaboratively. Yep. And and merging the, uh, the hardest thing, you know, I, I I've been trying to explain this to people. One of the hardest things to do today is to figure out how people can work with each other that don't understand each other. And we do this all the time because we have, you know, engineers working with writers to explain how some product works. I mean, that's just an example. Every company has lots of different people who are capable of doing lots of different right. kinds of things that are working together. But we need to go beyond that somehow to figuring out how yeah, if we do it every works. day. We just don't think about it. But right, the average person and having a discussion, whether it's political or otherwise, as you're saying, they, they have to learn how or we have to teach people how to communicate and, and to be able to work together. Yeah, and it, it, it's somehow also beyond communication. I mean, the best example of people working together that I know is, is a sports team, you know, yeah. basketball team or yeah. a football team or other teams where each person knows that they're doing something that's different from the others and they know how to put those pieces together. And, and we have to stop being so angry with each other that we disagree and start figuring out how we can do those kinds of things. Um, and um, that's the big challenge as far as I'm concerned today. Because Yeah, you've hit it. Yeah. The, the, the world is, is in a trajectory where the information is not going to decrease. Yeah, it's only going to get more complex right. as, as we go. And so we're going to get more and more bewildered and overwhelmed. And, and the way we need to deal with that is by having other people that we trust, that we work together with. And um, it's, it sounds like an idealistic approach or perspective, but this is the real deal right now. The real deal is that we are moving into a context where we have to work together in order to be able to survive thrive, and to thrive. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. How do you see um, quantum computing um, in helping you in your field of, of, of study? I'd, I'd imagine that that's a, a phenomenal um, tool for your use. And I, I know that there's already some quantum computers out there. Um, extremely expensive. So I, you know, I, I don't know if, if they're available to you readily, but they will be eventually. But how, how do you see that factoring in? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm don't want to disappoint you too much, but, um, <laughs> Computers are capable of doing certain kinds of things. And there's all of this AI, you know, artificial mm -hmm. intelligence, computers are going to do so much. What, what artificial intelligence is going to do is going to take away the boring things that we don't really want to be doing. Now, that may be important economically, right? Because there's a lot of boring stuff that people are doing and getting paid for. Right. So that's figuring out how that economic transition is going to happen is, is very challenging. But if we think about computers as replacing what people are doing, doing what I said uh -huh. in terms of people uh -huh. working together, that's not what it's about. 
Um, and so even quantum computing, you know, quantum computing has it, people are very enthusiastic about it, but there are, it, it, it's not just that there are, um, you know, that you can criticize it because of, you know, uh, sort of where we are. It's, it's not as far along as many people right. think. Um, but there are very fundamental reasons why quantum computing may not do what people think it should do. They have to do with quantum behavior of systems, coherence and incoherence, and, and, and sort of how much you have to control in order to make, you know, coherent wave functions. And we could talk about it a fair amount, but the bottom line is um, we don't know what kind of technological changes it will bring. But I can tell you that the changes of society, how people interact with each other, is going to be much more transformative for how people okay, right. how people deal with the world than the quantum computing business. Well, we have a quantum computer in our brain <laughs> right now well, that we should probably use more often. I, I, I kind of have a theory, which is kind of strange, that that we're devolving instead of evolving because we're because we're relying so much on technology that you know a human being say 10,000 years ago was really as intelligent um as as a human being today it's really just the technology um that we've that we've created but as we keep creating more and more of it that it's it's becoming a crutch that that we're relying on it too much and maybe that's kind of what you're saying a little bit about the the quantum computing that it's it's not going to be as big a deal um, possibly as as what everybody's saying or or with AI uh, you know that these are just terms that are just being thrown out as supposed answers to to the problems to everything but right. I, again I think that, not necessarily you know people talk about sort of a tr you know a transformative moment in terms of you know AI or quantum computing I think that there is a transformation that's happening. And again, I think the biggest transformation is the society change. And if you think about people working together again, all of that happens and by and large is facilitated in one way or another by technology. Not all of it, I should say. I mean, right. we, we still talk to each other. You know, right now, you and I are talking together through computers and through wires and through the internet and all kinds of things. Um, but talking to people, talking to people, even though it's happening with the aid of technology, still, you can really think about the way we're working together as being about the people and not just about the technology. Right. And, and so if we, if we take that as an instance, and it's not the whole story by any means, then what we see is that the tremendous interaction that's happening among people, and you can imagine this globally through social media and all of the dance of how we engage with each other. Um, and, and it goes all the way from, you know, people meeting in a cafe and chatting to, to you know, broadcasting on Twitter uh, or on, you know, global um, YouTube or whatever. Yeah. Um, the 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 way to think about the world is that we're kind of all 
kind of a single thing, right? We're all talking to each other in a way that links, makes everything that we do dependent in one way or another on what other people are doing. And it's, again, it's simple things like, you know, what we eat, where does it come from, to what technology we use, to um, what we're thinking about and what we're talking about. And so, and, and where we are, right? You know, where, where in the world we happen to be today. So if you take all that together, what you see is that human civilization is becoming this technology-enabled collective. And so isolating the technology and saying, what is the technology going to do versus thinking about what people are doing with the technology right. is, I think, the wrong way to think about it. It's us. It's, it's really us. Most of what computers are doing you know, the AI revolution was supposed to happen 40 years ago. Um, still, most of what computers are doing is, is, is generating graphics so that we'll look at them. Um, so speaking of which, how, how, how do you feel about this, quote, singularity effect, uh, for, or if it's ever even going to occur, the singularity of, um, you know, computers becoming sentient or... Uh, again, I mean, I, again, this, this, I, I don't, I ahead. mean, there's, there's pieces. I mean, remember back, you know, the, the Nick mythology Bostrom. of John Henry. Mm-hmm. John okay. Henry was this uh, super strong guy that was building the railroad. And mm-hmm. they talk about the competition between John Henry and a steam, you know, yeah, right. steam uh, a hammer, right? Sledgehammer that was pounding in the, the, the nails for the railroad. The rivets, yeah. And the story goes that they had this competition and John Henry won and then John Henry died. And that's kind of the, the transfer of an age from the time when people were providing the physical power to steam and later other forms of energy were providing the physical power. So Interesting. The, yeah, the same thing, as far as I'm concerned, is happening now with artificial intelligence, there's a certain set of tasks. And now it includes, you know, speech recognition and, uh, you know, visual figure recognition and stuff like that. But that's stuff that a baby can do, you know, a two year old right. can do those kinds of things. Um, we are, the fact that computers can do pattern recognition is not the same as the fact that computers can do the same as what people do. And, this is a subject of a longer conversation, and maybe if you want to invite me back sometime, we can talk yeah, about it. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, but the short story is, um, I don't think people will be replaced in the sense of that people will become obsolete relative to computers. I do think that there is a lot of the current things that people are doing for, for a living that will be threatened by technology it's happening it's been happening and it will it's been happening. happening yeah um and and that kind of societal transformation is is something that we need to um grapple with uh in a strong way but um but the 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 conceptual challenge where we where we're thinking about um computers sort of doing everything that people do only better is is mostly a, a 
something that um, is is not going to happen. How about the dystopian side of of all of this and and the direction that it's going? You know, we keep being promised, you know, that everything's going to be used in a in a fair and, and honest way. But you know, the Big Brother aspect of the direction that we're moving in and in how uh, just uh, us being observed basically twenty four seven. Uh, all of our data right now, you know, being re- recorded and, and stored by the by the NSA. And right. hi, NSA, how are you? <laughs> um, and you know what, where where that's leading? Um, it's it's a very scary prospect. And and what's scary to me is that most people aren't really seem concerned by it. And and to me, that's really like kind of because it's been done in, in a trickle effect over a long period of time just to kind of get people used to the idea uh, because you know what we see obviously today you know the government is probably you know at least 30 years ahead <laughs> of anything that we're d- discussing or, or even talking about out there of, of what they know but just the the sale of, of data which I'm very uh, um, aware of and in, in my past work experience in, in working with with uh, per, uh, people's data and information um, information and, and how um, uh, what am I trying to say how um, how much value there there is in that and there's no more control anymore over that it's out of control yeah and and you mentioned your the information NSA, is out there to be bought by anybody you mentioned the NSA of course but in this country a lot of the data is in the hand of companies. Like Facebook yeah, yeah, the big, yeah, the corporations. And, yeah, you're right. And so on. Um, That's really where I should have went with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so so part of what's happening is that there is this new capability um, that the technology has enabled. Now, we've had cases where technology enables things. And we still have to make choices about what we as a society and somehow collectively act on it, um, what we are allowing to happen. And I think that, you know, since these choices depend on values, it's very clear that they depend on values. Um, I think different places in the world are going to make different choices. Well, you get the nail on the head when you said what, what we allow to happen and it, it just seems that we, we've been kind of that's where in my intro the sheep <laughs> that would be the perfect analogy of the the sheep that we have become and just so used to the quote the the fear and the use of terrorism and the never-ending war on terror and and uh you know we so we need all of this uh technology and and uh safety uh, uh, out there in order to to prevent you from being killed in a in a, a dirty bomb explosion let's say but you know the chances of all of these things actually happening to an individual are so minute but the use of fear is just such a potent right well uh, right thing you know if you think about it what you're doing in your in your discussion is you're creating a model the model has the external impetus of a terror event 9-11 and the internal behavior of the response right. to that, the fear. 
And part another parameter is the extent to which people care or don't care that their information is being tracked versus mm -hmm. how much they care about the security and whether what they're told about the likelihood of such an event is. Now, we could make that kind of model, and I'm not saying that would be the right model to make right now, but but you see how we could analyze the situation and stand from the side and say, oh, you know, it really looks like this society is going to end up in a place where all the information is tracked and people are, you know, such a, or we could make the conclusion right, that no, the society is going to end up in a place where it's, um, you know, where they reject this concept of being tracked. Um, and, and the answer is, um, if you think about what's been happening, it's pretty clear where the direction is. And now maybe we have to figure out. Or how about in China, like where you're, you've got a social score now <laughs> and there's people that are being denied even just basic rail service, right? Or, or even being able to, to travel buy a home to do anything. Um, exactly. This goes so far and over beyond what we have here and just our uh, basic um, credit scores, which is which is scary enough <laughs> as it is. But what's happening over there <clears throat> and that model is very scary um, to, you know, to hope to God that that doesn't in some way, you know, migrate its way over in this direction. Just, and again, the, this will reflect ultimately the collective effects of values, right? How people um, respond, you know, do they go out? And it's going to be up to us. Yeah, it's going to be up to us. Exactly. And, um, and so um, if you write down the things that you really care about, you know, basically you can't care about too many things because you can't, um, change too many things. So you have to figure out yeah. which are the most yeah. important things that you care about. And I tend to do that a lot. And yeah. I've had to learn to, you know, what you can't control, <laughs> you can't control, you know, you can't spend your, your days worrying about it, you know, constantly, um, you know, these different issues, which you can't control. Exactly. So, um, we may hope that society goes in one direction, but if collectively people don't care or the conditions are not conducive, um, then we may not end up in the place that we feel is the right place. I think those are kinds of things that are definitely worth careful thought and analysis. And, um, and we should understand what the consequences are of the choices that we're making. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially again, going to the consequences to the generations down the road. I don't, I have no idea what it's going to be like for them. If you, um, if you want to, that we're in a kind of bottleneck, it seems right now that the choices that we make at this moment are just so uh, incredibly in, important on, on an existential level of these risks of, of different things. Like we just mentioned, like AI or anything else, of, um, you know, these, these decisions are, are going to have long lasting effects down the road yeah. that we're at a, a certain point in time in history. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, again, you know, everybody has this set of things that they may be they're most worried about. Um, 
You know, a lot of people are talking, for example, about climate change, but very few people understand that the the real risks have to do with the extreme events and not the average change of, of right. climate. And um, what those risks are for us is something that is not well understood um, scientifically and not well understood uh, uh, politically, but the, the realization of, of risk is important. And the, the main reason why we're at risk is that we are able to do very big things. It's a tremendous accomplishment. Human civilization has achieved an ability to do incredible things. Now we just have to do it wisely. Wisely, which I, which would bring me to CERN is a perfect example of that. And a lot of the experiments and things that are going on there that we don't even, don't even know about. And, you know, some of the, the physicists that were very concerned about, you know, creating these micro singularities and black holes and, you know, thank God that that didn't happen, but, but it was, it was a very valid point. And it makes you think back to the, uh, and I talked about this with Anthony, my, my previous uh, guest and uh, about the, um, nuclear uh, explosion and the first test of a, of a nuclear bomb and, and the scientists having to go back and forth and thinking about whether or not uh, the atmosphere was going to just ignite. And they brought it down in, into just uh, uh, one mathematical <laughs> theorem. And I can't remember what it was, but it was like, I think like three chances in a million. I can't remember what it was, but that they would still go ahead with the experiment. And of course they did. And we're, we're still alive. Thank God, knock on wood. Um, but that if you look at the odds of the chance that they took, and I wish I had remembered exactly what it was, but, but if you, I, I do remember that, uh, that you, you had a greater chance of being struck by lightning, um, and that this occur actually occurring, that the atmosphere would ignite and and uh, completely <laughs> uh, disappear, and we're all fried by the radiation, you know, so on and so forth. So in the meantime, that's a perfect example. In the meantime, the the challenges that we're facing are often much more concrete. You know, we're not taking action effectively about uh, pandemics. We are not paying attention to real risk that's present now. Yeah. You know, there's a Ebola outbreak in the East DRC that's not under control. Um, and it's been that way for um, almost six months. Um, yeah. uh, it's on a slow burn right now, but that doesn't mean what will happen later. And there are lots of things that we're doing that have to do with, you know, decisions that are being made by companies or by, you know, whether they're in agriculture and industry or other places, we're not paying attention. No, they're just acting on places. their own. A lot of them, or they're not under regulation or they're in another country that, that doesn't have it. That's and, right. and I remember there's a really great podcast and I can't remember the name of it. I wish I did because I'd recommend it to people, but it does discuss these different existential risks, but he brought up, about how many different pathogens have already just escaped out of the laboratory right. and that this is actually easier, um, can happen easier than people think. 
can happen because of these different controls because we're humans right, and humans make mistakes. Is, part of the problem again is that people can only focus on so many things. Right. right. And there's too many things. And, and again, a lot of people going back to what we talked about earlier are struggling to make ends meet. Um, they're really focused on, on, on making sure that they get ahead in their basic needs. Um, I, I think we, we really need to create a, um, framework in which we can, again, share the responsibility for dealing with some of these high risk, you know, low probability, high impact events. Um, and, and, you know, make sure that we take care of, um, both kinds of things, the things that everybody is confronting. And we talked about the economic ones, we talked about the complexity, people are getting overwhelmed. Um, you know, there are, we talked about, you know, pervasiveness of extreme events, you're in Florida, um, you know, what is the limit of the hurricane that you can actually uh, be okay with? Um, and, and so there, there are those kinds of things that are very broad based and we know about them. Um, and then there are these, you know, hey, you know, what are we doing? I mean, you mentioned uh, nuclear particle experiments. Um, as we move forward in whatever technology, biotechnology with CRISPR or other things, um, the people who are engaged in those actions, what are the mechanisms that we need in order to make sure that risks are being addressed and right now the the framework for doing that is not well thought out the best you get is right. people getting right. together and saying we really should worry about these things shouldn't we be worrying <laughs> right. about these things and they have a special conference where they sit down and they say well you know we really should be worrying about these things um, a conference for a conference. That's right. For a but, conference, yeah. but the bottom line is that all of these kinds of things have to do more of what we don't know than what we know. Yeah. And mm -hmm. the tools for thinking about what we don't know are definitely not in statistics. Because statistics is only about past things. It's the right. things that, we've, that have already happened that we know how to apply statistics to. So... If there's going to happen something that's different from the past, we really have to use different mathematical tools. And again, going back to the beginning, that's what complex systems is about. It's about what are the mathematical tools that go beyond the assumptions of statistics and calculus that enable us to think about how things depend upon each other so that we can figure out how a small thing that we do looks very small turns into a very large thing that we didn't anticipate. Event, yeah. Yeah, and hopefully instead of, like you said, discussing it, that we come to some conclusions um, That's right. of, of how to prevent uh, some of these things that we're talking about. Exactly. Well, how about, um, I know we're getting close here on, on an hour, but I'd like to ask, you know, how this does apply to theoretical physics um if you're doing any work in that area uh, area um 
and especially, you know, tackling things like dark matter and dark energy, which of course is, is just our way of saying we have no idea what's going on yeah. out there. And, and, uh, I, I think that there's, you know, there, there really are two different views of what's happening in physics in those domains. One is that, you know, we really understand most of what we need to understand. We have these few things that, you know, they look like they're important, but, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll put things together in a little bit different way. When you say we think we do, isn't that usually how it is? I mean, we think that we're getting there. We think that we understand everything, but then one, just one small event occurs and everything is, is, is out of whack. So I actually think indeed that there is still a lot of opportunity for innovation in that space. I will say, however, that, um, that, uh, the, the elementary particle cosmology physics, I, I'm not yet convinced that the innovation in that space is going to affect how we, you know, how we uh, travel around the world or how we understand how to talk right. to each other. I think that the, there can be incredible innovation um, that will affect how we understand the unification of gravity with you know, electricity and magnetism and weak interactions. So do you think we will find that link from, from what's happening on, on the micro scale, on the quantum scale, to what's happening on the macro? I, I, like you said, what's right now, I'm, we don't know how it affects yeah. anything because it's just so different. In the meantime, uh, I think that it's going to be exciting when we figure out how to solve the, you know, sort of the fundamental physics problem. Um, but I really think, you know, there are these, you know, going down to the tiny, 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 the other direction of figuring out how things work together, which is what I've spent much of my uh, career doing is its own, its own exciting problem. It's very fundamental. Um, uh, Phil Anderson, uh, a physicist who wrote an article once more is different and there are various takes on that. The idea that um, I actually, when I finished my PhD thesis, I talked about the fact that understanding how things work together is is different than under than the than the standard physics. You know, going into the smaller and smaller, and it was funny because I think. The people that I spoke with, including my advisor, were was not very excited about that distinction. But I think since then, um, people now appreciate that understanding collective emergent behaviors is really an exciting part of physics. Right. And you know, a lot of statistical physics and dealing with phase transitions was about that. But there's so much more to understand. Um, there's a there was this um, book, I think, The End of Science in the 1990s, uh, which basically said, hey, we've, we've figured everything out. <laughs> right. Um, and, and my take on it at the time and my take on it till today is that we've really just scratched the surface. There are so many dimensions of scientific inquiry that we're not even doing yet. And realizing that there is this opportunity should should really excite us about what we can know. And so, right. 
I, I think that there isn't enough appreciation of how little we understand. Um, we that's what excites yeah. me is just how little we understand and so just how much knowledge there is out there to gain. I'm hopeful that uh, we will have you know new generation of of scientists that will um, engage in the big challenges that we still face in every domain that we need to still understand, whether it's the, the physics problems that you mentioned or whether it's the societal problems, it's all part of advancing the boundaries of our, our knowledge and understanding. Well, your, your studies and what you're doing, and again, I, I feel that that really is the toe, the, the theory of everything, that this is kind of where it's going to emerge from, uh, is from the work that, that you're doing uh, and affecting uh, all of these other different areas of, of science, you know, whether it's theoretical physics or biology or whatever it is, because it's, uh, it really is the, the study of, of everything, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of how I look at it. Well, I, I, or, how, or how everything inter, interacts together. I think, that, I think that the important thing is not maybe what you've said, but the important thing Putting is understanding that they're exciting questions. If you know that the, everything starts from, um, from asking questions, um, that's what I think is important. So if one of the things that I hope I've contributed is to expanding the set of questions that we're asking yeah. in a way that we can make progress. Well, if we don't ask the right questions, that's you're exactly correct. That's what everything is. We, we have to know what, what, what are the correct questions to, to be asking so that we can get to the, the answers. You're absolutely right. Well, I, I appreciated this greatly. Um, and I hope our listeners gain some, some knowledge from this discussion because like, like I said, it, it just has so much effect across the board and, and uh, to our everyday lives um, from the very small to, to the very large. And uh, I hope that they get that connection and that they do some more study in, into this into this work and, and how it does affect them and, and looks up some of your YouTube videos. And you have anything yet that you have coming up or any any new books or you'd want to mention well i mean if if people want an introduction to some of the ideas of complex system science um or if they want to look at more of our research you know our website is is a good place to go it's where it's the, the new england complex systems institute um it's n-e-c-s-i just the initials of new england complex systems institute dot edu um i'll make sure that's in the show notes and um and there's uh, the book the book that's accessible that i've written is called making things work it's about how we use some of these um ideas and methods uh, for tackling some social problems that we have and if there are people who would like more of the math there is a textbook that is available to download it's called dynamics of complex systems and um, uh, I'm sure that uh, the most important thing that they will find there is the questions that they, I hope, will contribute to their answers. 
All right. Well, thank you again very much uh, for for joining us. And uh, I just want to mention everybody, make sure and, and subscribe. That's the most important thing. Please, uh, you know, give us five stars. That, that really helps us to be found in the, uh, the algorithms that, that iTunes uses and, and the different platforms, you know, it's not really so much for a review anymore. It's really to be found. So if you can give us five stars, it would be greatly appreciated. And then you can write a, a review, hopefully a kind <laughs> review of the show. And, um, and also to support us uh, through Patreon uh, so that we can continue the work. We also want to start getting into work with the Innocence Project and helping to get um, innocent people that are in, in prison freed, which is an incredible um, nonprofit organization that does this, uh, attorneys uh, that are, are pro bono, of course, that work tirelessly to, to see this this done. And I think it's something like 4%, it's estimated, of, of the population. Uh, it's amazing to, to even just think about this, of the uh, inmate population are innocent and what that must feel like. I couldn't even imagine. So that would help us uh, greatly, uh, any Patreon um, support and joining us uh, on our journey. And again, I, I thank you all very much. Yanir, thank you again so much. I, I really enjoyed this. And I would, I'd like to do this again um, because there are so many different facets uh, to this to discuss that we, we really did just scratch the, the surface. Well, I'll be pleased to come back and it's been really a pleasure to talk with you. And I hope that your audience will uh, enjoy the uh, discussion. I'm sure they will. All right. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Have a good one.